are here! Hello and welcome to episode 162 of Blockchain Insider. My name is Mauricio Magaldi and I'm joined by my co-host Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. What's up Kai? How are you doing? I am doing well. Wow has a lot happened in crypto since last time we've recorded a news episode. So we've got plenty to cover today. A lot, a lot. So it's so great to have you with us. Today I'm stepping in for Simon who is globetrotting this week to take a look at this month's biggest news story. So we're going to talk about Terror with Terra. Luna nosedived under $2 and Algo stablecoin TerraUSD loses 98% of its value. Then we're going to talk about ex-Meta crypto chief who's launching a Bitcoin payments startup while Meta's Instagram is partnering with Polygon to do NFTs. And we're also going to talk about a little bit about how regulation is becoming a hot topic with countries like the UK, Germany and Portugal unveiling their regulatory plans. To do this today, I'm joined by some fantastic guests. Welcome Jacqueline Malinek, Senior Crypto Reporter at TechCrunch. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been a busy past couple of weeks, so happy to talk about this with you guys. Absolute pleasure to have you here. And also by Zach Lambert, Product Manager at Plaid. What's up, Zach? How are you doing today? I am great. I think some some recurrent themes for this show, but the actual nature of the topics might have changed a little bit in the last couple of weeks. So excited to get into it. Let's do this. Let's jump right in. So we're going to kick off with one of the sort of biggest news in this news cycle, which is Terra, Terra the blockchain and UST, its stablecoin, the most recent poster child for algorithmic stablecoins, crashed and burned. And Luna, the counterpart token, nose dives under $0.001, losing over 99% of its value and helping tank in the markets. UST worked on a mint and burned mechanism using its sister token Luna. Luna token is tradable for UST, and if someone sells UST for Luna, then Luna is burned. Investors looking to pull out their UST and Luna will drive the price down and create a vicious cycle. LFG, Luna Foundation Guard, the community orchestrating the stablecoin engine, had been buying Bitcoin to bolster their treasury and fend off these downturns and had to sell off their Bitcoin to try and maintain enough reserves to keep the peg, but that ended up pushing down the price of Bitcoin and failed to ultimately hold the peg. A lot to unpack here. So I'm going to start with Kai. Kai, in your analysis, what, what happened? How did this come to be? <laughs> Where do we even start? I, I think first, like, this is a really unfortunate, you know, significant setback for the the crypto industry, and I think you know you have a number of different concepts you know coming together, and you have you know a new blockchain ecosystem you know in Luna, you have a native stablecoin in that ecosystem called UST, and there's this really important concept of an algorithmic stablecoin, and so you know when someone hears the term stablecoin, it's easy for them to think, oh, you know, USDC and Tether, and there are many different types of stablecoins. And so UST was designed to be algorithmic, and that means it wasn't backed by fiat held in a bank; it was backed by an algorithm and a smart contract that tries to expand and contract the supply, targeting you know a stable price, but requiring financial incentives for for third parties. And you know, this worked <laughs> for a time. And I think there was also you know, a number of applications that UST you know, were used in in the DeFi ecosystem and Anchor Protocol you know, being the main one that had these exorbitantly high yields that were driving a lot of people in. And I, I'm not sure the specifics, but I believe they were subsidized in, in some way. And so you had consumers that were buying UST you know, not really for payments. Um, we can talk about kind of some of the backstory around payments here, but they're buying it to get high yield on that UST in a DeFi protocol. And you know, over time, what happened is as people withdrew from that DeFi protocol, you know, UST you know started getting burned. The Luna price you know started dropping, and you had this death spiral 
where you basically have this run on the bank or run on the DeFi protocol of everyone wanting to get out of UST. And there wasn't collateral you know, backing all of it. And the price stability mechanisms you know, did not work under this period of stress. And then you have this catastrophic you know, downfall of both you know, the value of UST and the underlying token Luna that was you know, purported to you know, be able to be redeemed you know, for it. And so, so many different concepts at play here. It's incredibly complex. And I think that's part of the problem is when you have a lot of consumers and investors interacting with an ecosystem that I don't think everyone really understood exactly what they were getting. And when it's called a stable coin and it gets conflated with, oh, there's a dollar in a bank, that can be you know, incredibly damaging for a, a lot of consumers and in investors. And so, so I think really unfortunate. But love Jacqueline, Zach, like, you know, was that correct? Like, I don't even know if I followed it, you know, every, there's so much drama news on Twitter. Like, here's your perspectives on, on what actually happened there. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely correct. And going off like the death spiral aspects, like people began to lose confidence that the stablecoin would hold that $1 value and the fear settled in, people were pulling out. And as it was going from 90 cents to 80 cents to like where it is now, there was a huge ripple effect across the crypto ecosystem. And there's been like a lot of speculation about like what triggered this, like whether it was correlated to like the $2 billion withdrawal on Terra's anchor protocol, which could have been due to someone shorting Luna or betting on its price following. And that's not fully verified yet, but that definitely had something to do with it. And these systems, especially the algorithmic stable coins, they work well until they don't. And it's really unfortunate, as you said, that people bought into this and they really didn't know what they were getting into. And it's sad because people have lost full investments. Companies, protocols have lost all their money and some people have taken their lives. So it's definitely like not a joking situation. And I know none of us are joking about it, but it's a serious thing. And it's definitely going to cause a lot of like regulatory pressure going forward. In that sense, what's the type of reaction we're seeing from regulators? Because I've, I've read a few things about this becoming the trigger for regulating stable coins, but they're not all created equal, right, Zach? What's what's your take on what are they and how regulators can participate into helping maybe retail not get into these things ever again? Yeah, I mean, and this is this is kind of why regulators exist generally, right? If there is a product that is so complex that the users and consumers of that will sign up without understanding what it does, that is probably a good time for like regulators to work with good actors in this that know what they're talking about and have consumers best interests at heart to kind of frame the discussion and like product adoption for users. So I think that's the regulatory angle. On the on the, the stablecoin piece itself, you're right that they're not created equal. I think uh, to, to an earlier point, you know, there are two kind of broad types of stablecoins, one that is sentiment backed and one that is backed by fiat in bank account. And Sentiment-backed ones are great and function super well and make people a lot of money when sentiment is positive. But when sentiment becomes slightly less positive, there is an outsized chance that sentiment will fall even further. And you know, to, to Jacqueline's point, be a run on the stablecoin itself that kind of leads to the depegging incident, like what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. So I think it's important to kind of differentiate between, you know, stablecoins were created to serve an important purpose, right? Like when you look at wire bank transfers, for example, those are like really difficult. The UI kind of sucks. The barrier to entry for people using them is not awesome. They are subject to like branch opening hours kind of across the country. So you see a lot of like really cool use cases where, you know, to, to write angel checks and to make investments, you legitimately see, you know, people that probably listen to this podcast transfer like USDC versus something else, which is backed one-to-one -one by like money in bank account. And that is an awesome use case. That could be an awesome use case for something that is that is sentiment backed. Um, the, the problem with that is that the sentiment just needs to be there and remain positive the whole time. I, I think this is such an interesting lesson of like, what was the number one use case and what was the demand for the stablecoin? And as we've talked about, like, we think stablecoins, you know, as a concept of representing a dollar on a public blockchain can have benefits as a payment rail that can be global and, you know, permissionless and programmable. But here, the use case was not, didn't have anything to do with payments. I haven't seen any evidence of significant transaction volume in B2B or P2P. It was really the demand for UST was to participate in this exotic DeFi protocol that paid a very high interest rate. And so you start to see these second and third order effects where 
you know, you have a DeFi protocol that pays a high interest rate, that drives demand for UST that is needed to access it. And then that demand is very artificial and inflated. And when it turns around, then it leads to the, the de-pegging you know, of that stablecoin. And so I think it's very different when you look at a stablecoin for payments. And I believe I, there used to be an app called Chai in South Korea. And so there were some early you know, indications that maybe UST would be used for payments, but they seemed like they really pivoted to DeFi and earning yield as the primary reason to hold it, which I think is a very different type of an instrument, has very different effects than if the goal is how do you keep something safe and stable for the purpose of a medium of exchange and transferring value? Absolutely. And, and the fact that we're also conflating stability of a stable coin with a yield that's way over the average, like 20% APR is a lot anywhere, right? So when you mix these two things and expose retail, like regular day-to-day -day investors to something like this, all of the risk assessment goes out the window. And I think what we witnessed was so big of a promise that everyone who entered this ended up going on it just for the return and not for, say, another level of utility. Jacqueline, on your exploration of this story, what did you find most drastic in terms of what decision-making process the retailers or the retail investors were going after? I think the most interesting part to me is like there is that appeal of the 20% yield that Anchor was offering in Terra. And so when you see that compared to what a bank offers you at like what, 1% maybe, of course, you're going to want to get into that. And even now there's another one that just recently launched at 60% yield stable coin, which is poor timing and also can be seen as another like cash grab for other people. But I think something that's important when it comes to the regulatory factor that we talked about before was like, um, Elizabeth Warren, she was talking about Tether the same way she was talking about Terra, and they are not similar in any sense at all. And as Zach was saying before, there are multiple different types of stable coins. You know, there's public reserve backed stable coins like Tether, USDC, like Binance USD, and then there's like the public algorithmic stable coins like Terra, and then Iron, which failed, and Basis, which failed, and then there's like the institutional ones like JP Morgan's coin. So it's very important that these regulators get this correctly. Otherwise, they're all going to fall into the same pool and they're not going to be able to actually perform their correct use cases, in my opinion. So it's a timely situation and it's going to be interesting going forward to see where regulators actually drop into this conversation and if they do it properly. Yeah, it's like, you know, one thing that regulators don't trust is regulatory arbitrage as a concept generally, which I think a lot of these more like yield farming products kind of get into by nature to accelerate the adoption flywheel. Another thing that regulators don't really like is regulatory arbitrage at like massive scale, where I think, you know, at the time Terra started its fairly precipitous drop, it was like the third biggest stablecoin, something along those lines. Um, and like, again, it's unfortunate because, you know, having having worked with a lot of these regulators in both the US and UK and Europe, like the appetite for crypto solutions to like improve the lives of end users is real for them. They do see the value of a lot of these use cases. Uh, they do see that the world is becoming like one, increasingly more borderless, two, payments are getting a little bit faster and a little bit more fluid. And that makes regulation more important and not less, which is again why we spend a lot of time with them because like you know, the digitization of finance generally creates a like really beautiful and elegant, happy path for consumer experiences. Um, it creates the possibility for a significantly less good, unhappy path where, you know, all of a sudden, all of these people that like probably read stablecoin and then not that much further than that were surprised to learn very unfortunately that the value can be lost in a pretty quick time and not recovered. I think it's also worth noting that, you know, first, why would anyone want an algorithmic stablecoin in, in the first place? And there's been this idea of this holy grail of a purely decentralized stablecoin that could be perfectly stable. You can, you know, reference the dollar, but you don't have to depend on any central administrator that has to manage the bank account back in, in the fiat world. And I think the challenge here is one, we've found time after time that that hasn't worked. And that when people lose confidence, you know, there is you know, no entity that they can trust, no lender of last resort, and, and these things can spiral. And two, the way that this particular stablecoin ecosystem operated, 
it didn't really seem truly decentralized. You had this larger than life character, you know, on Twitter that was kind of publicly defending the peg. You had this Luna Foundation guard that was buying up Bitcoin and then doing kind of open market operations to try and defend it. Uh, and so, you know, first the, the kind of principle was you can replace a central bank with an algorithm and people realized that ah, it doesn't really work like that. That doesn't make sense. And then they're like, okay, well, you can have this foundation that is kind of acting as if they're a central bank and doesn't really work like that. And when people think that this is decentralized, you know, it, it really wasn't decentralized. And I think that becomes an even bigger issue and, and challenge of when you look at this from a, a regulatory perspective. And more more than that is like the fact that perceiving decentralization and and we discussed this on the scalability show that we did, perceiving decentralization as like as a one thing that applies everywhere is blatantly wrong. Decentralization across the stack, the technology stack of Web3 has different degrees of decentralization. As you get closer to the user, it is easier to be more centralized because then you have economies of scale. The more decentralized you have, more network effects. And trying to combine that with something that people perceive as a central point of view, which was the UST, is really complicated. And I don't think people accounted for that. And the whole mystique of having this bigger personality playing a part of this almost a meme over the time of these things uh, were happening was it wasn't even funny anymore. It was like this one person trying to fight uh, tooth and nail to retain credibility. And as Zach was saying, all of this is based on credibility. It was based on credibility. And it turns out that there was none. There was a number of people involved. Even the institutions that were associated to it are silent, at least from what I've seen. So what's, what's the type of punishment are we expecting for this situation? There's, there has to be repercussions, right? Yeah, I mean, there definitely will be. Uh, I know Do Kwan is being investigated in his home country right now. And I spoke with actually one of Luna Foundation Guard's advisors. There's four advisors who advise uh, Do and his other partner on the situation with UST. And this was prior to it collapsing. They would talk about it from a technical standpoint, educational. How did they get that out there? And I sat down with Jonathan Karas, and he's one of the four advisors. And he basically said, since the day that it collapsed, they have not spoken since. He has tried to reach out to Joe Kwan. Joe does not answer. And he said, maybe it's just him. But to his knowledge, none of the four advisors have spoken to him. And it's been pretty quiet. And I think what was most baffling to me because a lot of people in crypto get their news from Twitter, uh, threads or people writing, uh, whatever it may be. He said he also found all of his information about this situation on Twitter, like everyone else. I mean, I don't even have words for that. He's someone who's supposed to be an advisor and closest to Joe Kwan. And here we are finding out that there's been no communication since the day that it depegged. I think it was May 7th. So. Going forward, I'm not really sure what there is or what the stance will be and about Do Kwan's participation with the people he works closest to, even if he's out tweeting about the situation. Is he really working with the internal members? Is this the last time we're going to hear about a, an algorithmic stablecoin? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not the it's not the first time. As long as you can tell someone that they're going to get a 25% yield on something, there will probably be some appetite for that thing and appetite to build that thing. I guess, you know, in terms of consequences, everything that, that Jacqueline said, I think the like kind of important point for us to look at as like an in industry is one retail is probably not going to get their money back. That is probably not going to happen in any material way, shape or form. And that's very sad Two. We have a greater onus than we had three weeks ago to work with appropriate regulators and financial institutions to show the like legitimacy of the ecosystem as a whole for the use cases that are super, super legitimate, um, which, again, is as kind of an on-ramp, a thing that we do in terms of like aggregating the use cases and taking those to financial institutions and saying, here like the material outcomes that are not necessarily 25% yield that make people's lives better and, and slightly easier. And then three, I think... If anything, this is a call to action amongst other call to actions, calls to action uh, for 
like local and international, frankly, regulators to just get aligned as quick as they can on how they would like to regulate crypto. And I know that there's been kind of moving pieces of that through a number of markets and some of that activity has been fairly exciting. So. Yeah, I, I think one one last lesson, I know we, we, we have to, to, to move on is, you know, for a lot of listeners, we talk about the, the, the bankless meme of the DeFi mullet and, you know, fintech in the front and, and DeFi in the back. And I think this is a really good lesson of one, how important it is that the fintech provider, the interface on the front is educating consumers about what the DeFi is in the back and selecting DeFi protocols that have a certain, have less risk uh, than others. And so I've heard stories about, you know, fintechs that we're putting an interface on top of Anchor and, you know, making it really easy to deposit into without really, you know, making it clear what the risks were. And so I think, you know, we still believe there's a lot of opportunity in how, you know, these protocols can provide more efficient, you know, global lending markets, but the risks need to be disclosed. And, you know, the episode that we did with Chris Bremer you know, a few weeks ago talked about there's just so much more that the industry can do to make sure consumers are aware of what assets they're holding and, and what risks they're taking in these in these applications. So a lot of lessons learned. So before we wrap up, any particular pointers from this experience that you, uh, as Kai was saying, this there's a part to play in the fintech or the service provider. What do the protocols need to get right in the next roundabout of algorithmic stablecoins, in your guys' opinion? Sure. I think for protocols investing in this or building on uh, algorithmic stablecoins or whatever it may be, I think it's important for them to really do their due diligence. I know it's constantly thrown around the DYOR, do your own research thing, and not to just blindly follow prominent leaders in the space. I mean, Doquan's extremely intelligent, and there was a chance that this project could have worked out longer or fully long-term. but a lot of people followed him blindly and there were other like leaders out there from stablecoin industries. I wrote about this in one of my like TechCrunch Plus stories where Jeremy Allaire, who created USDC, basically said like six to eight months ago, he was concerned about the risk with this. He was constantly concerned with this and other people just didn't take it as seriously. So I think going forward, really considering like all aspects of things and questioning like what are the motives and how will this succeed long term or if it can succeed is really important. So you don't get burned. I don't think we've seen the last of the, the sentiment backs and algorithmic stable coins because that's just kind of an attractive value proposition. I think when we go to it next time, we'll be going to it from a much more informed regulatory point of view. Uh, again, and I think there's an onus on like this group in the industry in particular to kind of look back at the early days of fintech overall, where like the value propositions were undefined, institutional finance didn't really know like what Venmo or Cash App did or how they were good for the ecosystem. And I think educating you know back to people that are not by default interested in crypto or stable coins about like what some of the successful underlying use cases are just helps them spot the like slightly more problematic use cases a little bit earlier although again i think given the fall of the, the third biggest stable coin and given the regulatory interest generally plus the lack of enjoyment at 20% yield basically for free, we'll be going into the next round of this from a more informed point of view, hopefully. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like Fintech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome back. And so for the second half of the show, we're starting off with ex-meta crypto chief David Marcus launches a Bitcoin payment startup. 
backed by A16Z and Paradigm. And so after his departure from Facebook in November, you know, many crypto industry insiders speculated where longtime executive David Marcus would land. And you know, now he offered some early details on his next company, LightSpark, which will be building on Bitcoin's Lightning Network. So he will serve as CEO and a number of ex-meta crypto team members will be you know, with the company as well. Uh, so maybe Jacqueline, starting with you, Kind of curious your reaction of, you know, did you expect David Marcus to be building on the Lightning Network? You know, we haven't seen that many new high-profile, you know, startups on Lightning. You know, there's Strike, there's Lightning Labs. You know, what does this mean for Lightning and, and what was your initial reaction to this news? I was surprised, pleasantly surprised by uh, his decision to do this. I think we're seeing more and more talent come from like the Web2 space into Web3 and he is another perfect example of that. And while he might not be crypto native, he's someone who's entering the space and migrating into it. And I think that's a positive, a net positive for both the Lightning Network and crypto as a whole. In Mauricio, you know, going from David Marcus being known as as the you know, founder of of Libra and kind of the grand you know, plans that that Facebook had, now to Lightning, like how, how do you contrast like kind of where he started in crypto to now, you know, where it sounds like he's focused today? I think his like his journey through this is pretty interesting because he's a payments executive and that went on to be a messenger executive at Meta, which is like a, the attempt of Facebook to actually enter this in a meaningful way. And of course, Libra, as you mentioned, was probably the the shakeup that regulators needed at that point to start actually paying attention to this. And so it's very very interesting to see a big tech like Facebook moving the world around, oh my God, what 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 is this, right? What what is, what is it? Is Mark Zuckerberg wanting to be the single coin of the world? And that's obviously scary to any regulator. So I think Marcus on that context was instrumental for that movement and him moving out to actually do something which kind of doesn't speak too much with Facebook, but it speaks a lot with Twitter because Jack Dorsey is a Bitcoin maxi and is working with Jack Mallers from the Lightning Network constantly. Uh, seeing that as part of the journey to build on a broader Bitcoin reach is really, really interesting. And I think from every single drop of experience that uh, David Marcus had dealing with Libra, then DM, then having to sell that to somewhere else. I think he's he's got a lot of experience under his belt to actually make these things very useful to a bigger number of users, which you know it speaks to the nature of crypto in getting everywhere for everybody. So pretty pretty amazing to see. It was interesting to me that thinking back to like the early days of, of Libra in 2019, you know, one of the the big reasons behind, you know, they, they said, we're going to create this new Libra blockchain and we're going to do it because the existing blockchains don't scale to the point to meet, you know, Facebook's needs. You know, you can't have 2 billion users running on the Bitcoin layer one or running on Ethereum at that time. And then, you know, three years later, you're like, wait, well, the industry didn't stop. In fact, it accelerated. And so even though, you know, the Libra blockchain, you know, never you know, went live, now the assets were sold to Silvergate, we'll see kind of what happens with it, you've had all of these scaling uh, techniques and mechanisms continue to be developed and emerge. And so you kind of went from, let's create a new blockchain that is kind of permissioned and you know, more closed and centralized to fix scalability, to now building on the leading scalability solution for the most decentralized blockchain in, in Bitcoin. So Zach, curious your, your thoughts on just, you know, is, is this, you know, really good validation for Lightning as a network? And then do you think he's going to use stable coins on Lightning? You know, the Lightning Labs announced that, you know, that was, they have a new protocol to enable that. Or is this going to be about actually using Bitcoin for payments over the Lightning Network? Yeah, very, very good questions. I think we're all interested to follow a little bit. Um, I think, you know, a couple of overarching takeaways for me here. One, I actually have a very optimistic take on this. Like, there are two things about Meta kind of building out Libra and going through all of the regulatory pain and seeing Twitter abuzz every other week with takes on it. Will it launch? Will it not? I think you do that for two reasons. One of them is because you like sort of fundamentally think that 
your business model slash the world's business model will change over some medium term time horizon and you need to like remake yourself in that image. The second one is that like you actually care, pretty interested in the functionality. It seems like David Marcus is pretty firmly in that latter camp, right? Like that he was, you know, so excited about actually building the product that he left to do it and that he was so excited about doing that at Meta that he and they underwent a fair amount of pain in getting that to like near launch um, is pretty encouraging to the space. You know, he's no longer at Meta. He does still lend both his own and their kind of institutional credibility to something that is like fundamentally a little bit more decentralized. Um, I would guess to kind of an earlier question that he just sort of realized that, you know, there, there are different levels of centralization to a, a common theme of this show. And having one of those levels of centralization be like, this is proprietary to Meta was just kind of fundamentally anathema to like getting widespread user adoption. And then I guess Jacqueline made a really good point on like, I think the, the, you know, tech cohort uh, aligning around like Bitcoin generally lightning specifically is super interesting. Why aren't they building on ether Solana? We don't really know, but that's interesting to see develop to so the question on like, do they use stable coins? Do they use something else? I'm honestly not sure. It seems like there's been uh, kind of a scarcity of publicly available information on what he's planning on. Yeah, well, we'll be interesting to to follow and, and see where where this goes. And then in the meantime, you know, at Meta, you know, they announced you know Instagram is starting to roll out NFT functionality where creators can now mint NFTs on, I believe they mentioned Ethereum and Polygon uh, with Solana and, and other networks, you know, coming soon. Uh, and so, Jacqueline, I know you've covered NFTs extensively. You know, what does this mean? for the industry and, and more importantly, will they get it right? You know, will it work? Will will it become a hit or is this going to be some failed attempt from a web two company to try and become you know more into web three? Those are the million dollar questions you are asking. And I might not have the answer, but I do have some thoughts. I guess to start, web two getting into crypto from a centralized standpoint might appeal to general audiences, but I'm not sure it will to crypto audiences. In the sake of like when Coinbase launched their NFT marketplace, it really didn't succeed extremely well. And that's because the crypto community was already building on other NFT marketplaces. So Meta also doing NFTs on Instagram, I'm not sure if it'll succeed. I want to say it will, but I don't really know if it will. And the general Instagram user is someone who isn't fully familiar with NFTs. They might see the function think, oh, cool, they launched another option, but will they actually get into it? I think there has to be an education factor to this in order for it to succeed because I don't think the average Instagram user will touch it unless they really know what it's about. Yeah, Mauricio, do you think like, will they they take traditional Instagram creators who aren't in crypto at all and they'll be the ones minting NFTs to their existing audience or do you see, will there be a crypto Instagram the way there's a crypto Twitter of will there be existing NFT creators uh, who might showcase or interact with NFTs for their Instagram following, particularly artists and photographers and, and others that, that still have large followings there? Yeah, I think we know that uh, UX in crypto is broken, right? Needs to be largely improved. And this is something that Web2 really does well. Like we are used to the you know, look and feel and the usability and how things work on Web2. So I think a big upside is merging these two things. Our good friend Simon wrote the other day 2.5, Web 2.5. So I think that's that's the merge, uh, not the merge, but one merge uh, that we're seeing that this move by Meta uh, might improve in terms of the adoption. And in terms of uh, the target audience, I think the the fact that the creators in Instagram are always complaining that they don't own their content, when they realize that NFT is the means in which they now do, that changes a lot of the dynamic. And then this is also something that Instagram and Facebook and Meta in general is going to have to adapt in their business model because they, if they are into using decentralized um, infrastructure, what it means is that they don't own the data anymore. And that's a big chunk of their revenue model. So um, how that's going to get impacted, uh, we don't know yet. But if they're serious about it, they will have to rethink the whole business model because ownership now 
is in the hands of the creators. So I'm, I'm eager to see how that develops. It's worth noting that they're using, from what I've seen, they're using Wallet Connect. And so, you know, you can connect your you know, MetaMask or your Rainbow or, you know, your Phantom Wallet, you know, directly to an Instagram account. And so it seems like there's one world of this where it's the, the you know, the Novi wallet and it's a centralized custodial wallet that you're using to mint and collect NFTs. And so being able to actually have non-custodial wallets come in and, and be connected to the platform. Zach, what do you think that the long-term implications of that would be of could you imagine a world where hundreds of millions of Instagram consumers have their own non-custodial wallet tied to that platform? Would Instagram then be looking at what NFTs they have and then serving them ads based on that NFT? Like, where do you think that goes in the longer term? So interesting. It goes in so many interesting directions. I think to your point on kind of crypto UX being broken, onboarding needs to get fixed before any form of widespread adoption. Like fiat on ramps need to work properly, which is you know, something that we think a lot about kind of at Plaid. Um, two, like technical language needs to be replaced by human legible language. So like, I don't think that the first adoption of crypto from people that don't listen to this podcast or things like it, like if we are showing the average Instagram user a button that says like mint an NFT now, we will have objectively failed at our job to make this mainstream. That That's not something that they know what it means. And if people don't know like one, what something is, or two, why they're doing it. They just won't. That's like just a very hard barrier to, to get over. Um, I think we can get over that. Um, the Instagram NFT release, and I think others like it, right, are, are pretty good for the space fundamentally in that like the concept of NFTs as merch just makes a lot of sense. And to your point, the distribution mechanism will largely be like, Someone whose music I really enjoy, whose art I really enjoy, will want to find a kind of like alternative, either merch or monetization or exploration path for that. Uh, and being able to like just get that merch to users in new channels is a good explanation. Um, and telling those users that they need to like mint NFTs is a bad explanation. And I would love to like not learn that lesson too many times. So. And Jacqueline, how would you? Compare this to Twitter's rollout and their integration of like, it's interesting that there's already an NFT and crypto community on Twitter. I don't actually see that many hexagon, you know, uh, PFPs, you know, you have to pay for the Twitter subscription and, you know, it's only mobile. And so in a way you could argue there's like so much more that they could have done, yet they have the community there. Do you think Instagram, you know, may end up, you know, having a, a better implementation, even though they don't? you know, necessarily have as strong of a crypto community or how would you compare those two? Yeah, um, it's funny you bring that up because I was going to bring up the Twitter factor. And I, I agree with Zach's points about how this is like a net positive, even if it's going to be like a slow incline. Uh, with the Twitter situation, my Twitter feed is filled with crypto people. So it's filled with these uh, hexagon NFT profile pictures. So I like to think that Twitter rolled it out well and it succeeded, but I know I'm also a small pool and that my view is really heavily influenced by the crypto community um, in terms of the Twitter NFT launch. But with that said, people did use it. People in the crypto community did use it. And that is a signal that can also go across to Instagram. And I think there is a potential for success here because there are millions of crypto users. Whether or not everyone on Instagram adopts it, I'm not sure. But there's millions of people who use crypto and would probably really like this integration. So, yeah. And like to, to, you know, one thing that Twitter did well there that kind of goes to a, what you can probably tell is a personal pain point of like not using technical language to just kind of standard end users. Twitter didn't necessarily go out. It's like very specific language on what the hexagon means and like what the concept of an NFT is and try to get their average user who is not, you know, Jacqueline or myself to adopt that. They basically just said, like, here's the thing you can do. The shape will be different. Do you think that's cool? And, like, that's a way better acquisition model than kind of talking to, like, the actual technology behind the thing that they built. Yeah, I, I take, to me, the interesting metric has been, I see a lot of PFPs on Twitter, and only a small fraction of them are actually hexagons. <laughs> uh, and I think particularly the, like, the valuable ones, 
you don't want to send to a hot wallet and have on your phone. And because it's mobile only, you can't connect the hardware wallet. Like, there's so many like nuances in how that integration works that Web2 companies, as they become Web2.5, you know, have to learn. So Mauricio, any final thoughts on this? I know we've got a, another you know, topic that we need to get to in the last few minutes that you can, can transition over to. I'm just excited for this to become widespread. And, and as we discussed the other day, the technology will disappear when we're all there. So that's going to be fun to see. Okay, so wrapping this up and moving to our next topic. So recently, we've seen a number of headlines about crypto regulation popping up all over the world, with the UK targeting major crackdown on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, while regulation everywhere is being pushed more than ever. Authorities in the UK will be given stronger powers to crack down on illicit finance, including tighter sanctions on Russian oligarchs, and the ability to seize cryptocurrency assets under a new economic crime bill outlined in the Queen's speech. The government says the legislation will ensure Putin's cronies will not benefit from the UK's open economy after Russian money in the UK has come under more scrutiny following the invasion of Ukraine. But not all regulations are equal. While it seems to be pushed more than ever, globally, every country is adding their own flavor. For instance, Dubai is adopting a crypto law as it looks to become a hub for Web3. Germany is saying that crypto sold after one year will be tax-free, and Portugal is now is going to tax cryptocurrency income. So in, in our minds here at this very interesting discussion, what's the more balanced approach? I mean, we're, we understand, we've, and we've spoken about this on this Terra discussion, uh, Jacqueline, what's the sound approach? What's from all of this that we're seeing? More regulation, less regulation. What type of regulation is the most sound approach to this? That is a very good question. I think there has to be a consensus across the board, especially among the big G7 players. I know recently they called for like swift, comprehensive regulation, I think is how they phrased it. And if they were to get together and actually put together a guideline or any indication of how they want crypto regulated, it would help the community moving forward because it's hard to build and create a company or protocol when you don't know if you're fitting into the future guidelines that aren't out yet. And so I've heard this a lot with people in the industry is especially with like, and there's a lot of good players out there. There's probably bad ones too. Yes. As every industry has, but the good players want to follow the rules. They want their protocol or their project to exist long-term. They don't want it to get shut down. So I think it's so important that regulation comes sooner rather than later so that we can have these projects continue building. And it's not a question of whether or not my company can exist in this country or that country or will it be shut down because I didn't follow the rules that weren't even in place yet? Absolutely. And Zach, you mentioned one point before, which is the uh, regulatory arbitrage. What we're seeing in this headline is that there is space for arbitrage. The countries are taking very different approaches to this. So if the approaches are different and nobody likes arbitrage, how can we solve this conundrum of, well, where do we park our company now that we have other ways to go? Yeah, if, if someone had like a firm answer to that, uh, you know, it would be out by now and we would understand it. I think starting from kind of first principles on this one, it's better to work with regulators than it is to not on this stuff, because like it is clear that they have consumer interests at heart. I may not be like technological experts at first, but they certainly can get there with enough time. Uh, that's kind of something, again, to tie it back to, to fintech what we think about with like open finance becoming a reality, right? Like there will be kind of broad and interoperable regulation in, you know, financial services. It's not even all the way there yet. So it makes sense that crypto is kind of in early days. The kind of second downstream piece of that is like the interoperability piece zoomed in on, which is, you know, 50 years ago when you made a transaction, there wasn't actually an open question as to, if to as to if it was borderless or bordered. Like you were just probably in a store and you were probably paying with cash. As consumer choices proliferate and people can kind of do what they want with their money and you know hold USDC instead of USD uh, and kind of transact as they wish on board with whoever they wish. That's a little bit scary for regulators because all of a sudden, you know, 
they don't have like as direct control over their users and over all of the things that like the people that they are trying to look out for are doing on the internet. Um, and so I think making sure that like the government is in line with the regulator to use a kind of very British example uh, offhand is important. And then kind of zooming that out to make sure that all governments are on the same page with things like AML policy and KYC. And like that both makes things easier for users because they know what they're going to get. Uh, and it makes things easier for, you know, crypto exchanges and, and companies and use cases as well, because they know what to expect. They have that kind of regulatory clarity. Um, and so I think when when financial services regulation, uh, which, you know, is it a wallet? Is it an email address? It's whatever the regulator decides it is. Um, when financial services regulation started, it didn't matter so much that it looked the same in the UK as in the US because there just weren't that many communication lines between the two. Um, it matters a lot more now than it once did because, you know, I'm American. I live in London. There are many, many people like me and some slightly different, but there's like a very common use case of, you know, my identity and my money need to kind of follow me wherever I am. And I shouldn't need to go back to like the place that I was born to find those. And that's where the regulatory piece is going to have a, a really, really important effect. Got it. And to wrap it up, Kai, what do you think are the opportunities for the regulators themselves? I mean, we're talking about the companies, but is there upsides for regulators in this new web? Yeah. So I'd say anytime we talk about regulation, I think it's important to separate it into these you know, three key buckets. And you know, one is financial stability. And I think a lot of that is you know, how are stable coins backed? And you know, the importance of you know, knowing that you know, you're not going to have systemic risk of you know, trillions of dollars of stable coins in circulation. How do banks interact with the crypto industry? I think there need to be very clear rules. It's hard to say 10 to 20 years from now, no bank should ever be interacting with crypto, but there should be pretty clear guidance and and what you know the impact could be there. Uh, second is AML. You know, how do you prevent illicit finance or how do you catch people who are using these networks? Uh, and third, I'd say is more you know consumer protection uh, around crypto assets of you know, disclosures, you know, and not even is this a security or not, but how do you make sure consumers know what they're buying and what the risks are? Um, and particularly if there's, you know, it's dependent upon, you know, third party you know, building a product that they should have, you know, certain rights and, and obligations, you know, based on that. Um, and I'd say one of the things that's been encouraging is just the level of knowledge and education that's happened of like policymakers are, they are becoming experts and they have to. Because you can't even have a conversation about regulating crypto if you don't understand the difference between proof of work and proof of stake and algorithmic stable coins and fiat backed ones. Like any bill, anything that you write has to account for these nuances. And so I think we're seeing a broader recognition that this isn't going away. And you can't just you know, make a law or, or rule about it without knowing anything. Then the question is, how knowledgeable can they get? And it's a moving target that there are always new things that are happening. And so, you know, how do you work together with the industry? You know, how can the industry you know, be able to you know, have more responsibility for protecting consumers and it's encouraging seeing initiatives you know, like TRM and Circle you know, create a, a new platform to call out scams and be able to protect you know, consumers that way? And so I think the, the opportunity is, you know, there's a recognition that there is fundamental economic growth that can happen using these new technologies and these new networks. Every country wants that to happen, you know, ideally in their country and not someplace else. But you have to cooperate and work together because these are, are global technologies. And so I, I'm encouraged with the effort and energy going into education, both the private sector helping and the receptiveness of the public sector willingness to learn. But the open question is, how does that get translated into clear rules and guidance that you know, can help the industry be able to innovate in a responsible way? Absolutely. And with that, we wrap this up and we move to the part of the show where we do a quick roundup on some of the stories from the month that we didn't have time to cover. And they do deserve a shout out. French Open enters the metaverse with Roland Garros virtual seat NFTs. The French Tennis Federation has made its first move into the metaverse by announcing an NFT venture for the French Open Grand Slam tournament at Roland Garros. For the 2022 French Open, which is due to run from May 22nd to June 5th, the FFT is launching RG Game, Seat and Match. The FFT will harness blockchain technology to issue a collection of 5,000 NFTs, each representing a numbered virtual seat of court Philip Chartrier. 
which I find the most interesting thing. We're, we're starting to see NFTs break into the mainstream. Originally, we we're seeing NFTs just being the profile pictures and shapes of bats and apes and owls and other pixelated animals. And now we're seeing real-world utilities. If you get an NFT from the French Open, you have access to the virtual seat on the court, which is for the tennis enthusiasts a lot to take in. If you can't make it to France to watch the French Open, you can now watch it on a gated area sitting on the court with your own NFT from the French Open. European Commission favors ban on large-scale stablecoins, document shows. The European Commission is considering hard curbs on the ability of stablecoins to become widely used in place of fiat currency, according to a document seen by Coindesk. Officials appear to be siding with the views of European Union finance ministers that have proposed tough measures aimed at stopping the likes of Facebook's now-abandoned Libra stablecoin from a place in the euro. They would also require issuance to halt if transactions stop 1 million per day. The document is labeled as a non-paper, meaning it does not reflect the Commission's formal position and is one of a number of documents being produced to influence discussions on topics such as whether crypto firms should be able to register from tax havens. So, I think it's really important that regulators participate in the public dialogue about stablecoins and also that they really understand what stablecoins really are, how they work and what they mean for the overall economy. And the fact that this is a non-paper, but it's more like a provocation piece for discussion is important because that will spark not only discussions on the regulatory side, but also on the crypto native side that really needs to be in touch with everything that's happening on regulation. In our last segment today's show, I want to shout out you know, the tweet of the week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. Which comes from Kobe. I assume you pronounce his name Kobe. I've been following him for, for a while. Uh, haven't ever seen something this big go to zero like this before. It's like Titan, except it went from being worth $100 billion to $2 billion in a straight line downwards. Uh, there's just some really staggering losses and, and just you know, incredibly unfortunate of, of what happened you know, with UST. That wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Jacqueline? Yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at J-A-C-Q-M-E-L-I-N-E-K, Jack Melanick. Uh, you can also read my stuff on TechCrunch or TechCrunch Plus. I write a lot for TechCrunch Plus doing like market analysis, trend pieces, like big coverage of things and a deep dive there. So, yeah. Thank you. Zach. Yeah, thanks for having me. You can you can find more about me on Twitter at ZC Lambert uh, or all of the stuff that we're up to at Plaid's working with all of the global exchanges to solve the fiat on ramp problems at plaid.co.uk. So thanks again. Thank you so much. Kai. On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. Thanks. And you can find me at blockdropspot and also at 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps to make it better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcast at 11FS.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Stay rare. Stay weird. LFG.